We are continuing on in the book of Philippians uh, to study God's Word. And uh, we're coming around to, to a theme that occurred very early in the book, is now going to occur later on in the book as we're finishing up chapter 3. Uh, and bef- before we get to it, I just want to share a little story. It comes from about seven years ago when my wife and I were dating. I was living in Dallas and she was living in Memphis. And um, it was during a time when I was going to seminary. And during one of the summer breaks, I drove back to Memphis. And then I had a flight to go visit my parents, who at the time were living in Budapest. And Jennifer really gr- very graciously, uh, after I'd driven from Dallas to Memphis, volunteered to drive me to the airport uh, so I could go fly and see my parents. And as I, we were driving to the airport, I was joking, saying, oh, you know, I, I hope I didn't forget anything. And she says, yeah, you got your passport on, on you. And my face, instead of laughing, just went completely white. And I thought, oh, no, my passport. And I, I, we pulled the car over on 240. I began searching all my bags and didn't find it there and realized in, in a panic that a couple hours before my flight was going to take off that my wallet wasn't only not in Memphis, or it wasn't only not in the car, it wasn't in Memphis. It was all the way back in Dallas. So called and canceled the flight, drove to Dallas, drove back to Memphis. I think that was in, in one day. I, I mean, it's about a six to eight hour drive and I did it both there and back. I literally walked in the house, grabbed the wallet and got back in the car and then had, got the next day flight to go visit my parents. But one of the things about your passport is it, it's very important to travel with it <laughs> if you're going overseas. Because if you're going overseas, you need to be identified as the citizen of the country you're from. You need it to get out. You need it to get back in. And there are certain rights, certain privileges that go along with having your passport, isn't there? Of being a citizen of this nation. Not only allows you to to get in and out. as, As citizens, we have certain rights within our country. Guaranteed by our Constitution. There's also certain ways that different citizens should live. Uh, we have an idea of what it means to live as an American. Uh, there are other people who have citizenship in, in different countries, and they might have their ideas about what it means to live as a Russian or a British or a German or a Canadian citizen. So it, your citizenship provides certain responsibilities. It re- it requires certain privileges. It also determines what set of laws you're governed by. As a, as a U.S. citizen living here, I'm controlled by the laws of the United States. They're what govern me. Here we're going to get into a passage that r- reminds us of earlier in chapter 1. Earlier in chapter 1, uh, verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of what life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's translation of a Greek word that means uh, live in as a uh, live in a manner worthy of being a gospel citizen. It's live as a gospel citizen, and they kind of translated that because 
Uh, we don't think as much in terms of civic responsibility as they did back then to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But really it's saying you're a gospel citizen. Live as it. Here we're going to be told that our citizenship is in heaven. And this paragraph we're going to be looking at is going to be describing to us how do we live as a heavenly citizen here on earth. And there's going to be three ways in which this passage is is going to point out to us how we should live as a heavenly citizen here on earth. First of all, heavenly citizens imitate those who imitate Christ. Secondly, heavenly citizens avoid those who avoid the cross. Firstly, they imitate those who imitate Christ. Secondly, they avoid those who avoid the cross. Thirdly, heavenly citizens live in light of their identity and their destiny. So these are the the three kind of uh, pegs on which we're going to hang this message. But all of it revolves around how do we live out this reality that we are a heavenly citizen, yet we're living here on earth. Look with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. We're going to read through 4, verse 1, which 4, verse 1 really uh, can be applied to what comes before or what comes afterwards. Uh, So we'll look at that as well. First, uh, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glo- they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless the studying and the reading of your word. Lord, we pray that we would recognize your word as a gift. You did not have to reveal yourself to us. You did not have to show us to yourself. You did not have to give us written revelation of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to rightly understand, to rightly divide, to rightly apply your word into our lives. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear what you would have to say to us and that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that the truth of your word would be incarnated in our lives so that we might be lights shining in a dark and desolate world. Not so that much may be made of us, but that much might be made of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose beautiful name we pray. Amen. So first of all, we we have 
Uh, this exhortation Paul gives, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And, and one of the things you, you kind of think as, as you notice this is, you know, is, is that a little arrogant of Paul? Calling people to follow his example. Hey, look at me and, and act like I act. Uh, but one of the things that Paul realizes is that Christianity is often caught more than taught. It's often caught more than taught. That, that is, we, we can have all these things, we can say all these things about what we believe and how we should be acting, but more often what happens is that you look around, you see how the other Christians around you are acting, and think, okay, that's how Christians are supposed to act. These are the activities that Christians are to be participating in. Paul wants them to have a concrete example to follow. He, he's in, a, and the reason why he can make this exhortation isn't his confidence in himself, but in his confidence in Christ. He's in effect saying, "Follow me as I follow Christ." And and chapter two of Philippians was really giving examples of humility, following the Lord humbly. First, the supreme example in Jesus Christ. Then Paul mentions this himself, as well as Timothy and Epaphroditus. There, there are times in our own lives when attempting to follow Christ in our life, and you, you have the little bracelet safe saying, what would Jesus do? And you think, I don't know. In this particular situation, I'm not sure how he would act. And in those situations, Jesus was never in this situation. You know, Jesus... Jesus' car might have never been rear-ended by somebody. You know, you, do, you don't know how you would act in those particular situations. You have the principles, but you aren't sure how to quite live them out. In those instances, it's helpful to have examples among us. One of the ways we live as a heavenly citizen is to imitate those who are imitating Christ. It's important for us to find good models, find good examples in the faith, and imitate them. It's going to be important uh, also, as you do this, to become somebody who is a model and an example for others. Now, when I say this, I don't want us to get too much pride in our thinking. Our objective is to model what it looks like to be a fallen follower of Jesus Christ. There's one perfect example of what it means to follow and obey God. That's Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to attempt to imitate him, but acting as fallen followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there, there are certain situations, and, and those of you who have, have kids hopefully realize this, that there are ways in which you're going to have to teach kids certain things that Jesus didn't. You're going to have to teach kids how to apologize. You're going to have to teach your kids how to repent. You're going to be a model of that for them. And Christ can't model those things because he's a sinless example. We have to look to fallen people. We have to look to fallen followers of Jesus Christ for examples of repentance and turning away from sin and, and things like that. 
So we're to be imitators of Christ. We're fallen imitators of Christ. We need to be finding people who are following Christ more closely, more passionately, more fervently, more joyfully than we are, and attempt to imitate them, learn from them. Uh, there's an author. I, I had time to look up the quote, but I haven't had time to look up anything about the author, so don't take this as an, an endorsement of this particular person. He, he could be great. He could be awful. I have, I have no idea. But I've heard this quote before, and it says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. It says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, Jennifer and I have been married married for a long time. Uh, and, and so there, there are certain aspects of my personality that whether or not she likes it, she's picking up on. And there are aspects of her personality that I'm taking on. Uh, I'm, I'm very corny usually. So there's this one time Jennifer was making breakfast for us or it might have been breakfast for dinner or something like that. And she said, the eggs are ready. And I said, well, you know what I have to say about that? And she said, excellent. And I said, that's exactly right. (laughs) Now, seven years ago, before we were married, she would have never made a corny joke like that. But because she has lived with me long enough, that begins to influence her and her personality, whether she wants to or not. The people we're, we're around are influencing us. They're molding our character. They're molding the way we act, the way we think. That's why it's important to be intentional in finding good examples. And one of the reasons why it's so important to be intentional about finding good examples in the faith is because there are a lot of bad examples. Paul, in almost all of chapter 3, is arguing against the Judaizers who came into the church at Philippi and said, you know, uh, faith in Jesus, that, that's all well and good, but that's not how you get right with God. You get right by with God through circumcision, but through following the food and dietary laws, following the commands and the exhortations of the law and mo- following the Mosaic law. That's how you become right with God, through your own works. And he's been arguing against that example for most of the book and and saying, you know, that's not how you get right with God. That's not the way things are supposed to go. So it's important to find good examples, to imitate those who are imitating Christ to a greater extent than you are. Now, secondly, heavenly citizens, avoid those who avoid the cross. Now, this is not talking about uh, being out of the world. You know, you, there, there are going to be a lot of people who are opposed to or avoid the cross. This doesn't mean we have to go up in a monastery somewhere and, and separate ourselves from the world. That's a temptation for me. Uh, I, I'm an introvert, you know. Uh, you know, I, I think ministry would be really easy if it weren't for all the people. You know, that, that's what makes all these things so difficult. You know, so for me, the idea of, you know, separating from the world, just going up in a monastery, sitting there with your books, that sounds pretty nice to me. But that, that's not what we're saying here. We need to be in the world. And, and as a part of being in the world, you're always going to come across opponents of the cross. This is avoid imitating, avoid emulating, avoid having as your deepest and closest friends those who avoid the cross. 
And um, here, as, as we talk about this, one of the things I want you to realize, one of the important principles is, you know, the, the scripture talks about the narrow way. And the devil doesn't really care whether or not he pushes you off to the right or to the left. He just cares that he gets you off track. He doesn't care if he has to push you or pull you. He doesn't care which way you get off track, just as long as you get off track. And what's presented here are four elements of a worldview. Every worldview, every realm has to answer these four questions. And then who the particular people Paul is talking about, there's some division among the scholars. There are two different lines of thinking. I'm going to present both of them to you because I think there are ways in which you can get off track one way or the other. But what are these four elements of a worldview or a realm? First of all is, what is someone's end? What is somebody's destiny? I don't know if you know this, but as you read, as you read Scripture, almost every time our end, our destiny, or the return of Christ, things in the future are mentioned, it's to determine how we live in the present. Our, in a sense, our, our destiny determines how we're living today. A ministry I worked for for many years uh, said their, their tagline was, make your journey worthy of your destination. Where are you headed, saints? And how are you living? What your destiny is going to determine how you live today. If I'm going to Little Rock or if I'm going to Nashville is going to determine what I do when I get to Interstate 40, isn't it? Where's your destination? And how are you traveling? By the way, Christianity has has one of the most um, positive views of of the end times of, of any worldview. Uh, I'll give you an example of it, just because I find it interesting. In in Norse mythology, you know, you you have Thor and Odin and all those uh, ancient ancient gods. This was their view of, of the afterlife and the end times. So the objective for for good Norse folks, the Vikings and people like that, their objective uh, was to be a great warrior. And if you were a great enough warrior, when you died, you would be invited to the celestial mead hall of Valhalla. And there, for for ages and ages, all the great warriors from Earth would be gathered until one day there was going to be an unleashing of the forces of chaos and destruction. And all these warriors were being stored up for that great last battle where all the warriors would go out and fight the forces of destruction and chaos and lose. That and that was it. It was called Ragnarok. So all all the all the great Viking warriors are prepared for this last final battle in which they lose and chaos and destruction reign from then on. That's that's their end. That's their destiny. Now you you, you can see why they were quite a war hungry people, quite a, affinity to, to violence. So our end is different than that. The second worldview question is, what is their God? What do they worship? What's controlling them? Third worldview question is, what is their glory? Glory has the idea of weight in it. In, in, in both Greek and Hebrew, I believe, it's what is weighty? What, what is important? What do you treasure? What do you value above all else? Uh, one of the things when I think of glory is, I, I, I think of um, 
David. By the way, David's kind of an odd character. He doesn't fit our modern conception of people. Um, because, you know, you'll either think of, of David in, in one way, which is him with a sling or a sword as this great warrior, or you think of him like sitting on a rock with a harp and like strumming along. You know, in our, it, it, like as a poet and a musician, and those aren't concepts we really associate. When I say poet, you aren't thinking of a warrior. When I say warrior, you usually aren't thinking of a poet. But David is this combination of the two, a warrior poet. But in essence, the, the, the two concepts are really tied by one thing. It's what do you find glorious? What's worth fighting for? What's worth dying for? What's worth writing poetry for? What's worth praising? So the, the warrior poet can, has a deep sense of glory. What is glorious? What's worth fighting for? What's worth dying for? What's worth shedding blood for? What's worth writing poetry for? What's worth taking the time to mold the language to describe the glory of something? Fourthly, the fourth question all worldviews have to answer is, what is their mindset? What are they preoccupied with? What are they thinking about? What are they uh, obsessed with? Um, you know, it's odd to mention obsession during the March Madness. You know, you, you can say, I prioritize this or this is really important, but what are you thinking about all the time? Are you thinking about your brackets? It's a lot easier for me to talk about college basketball. I'm not addicted to it like I am college football. College football is much more convicting for me. But, you know, what, what's your mindset? What are the things you're thinking about? What occupies your thoughts during the day? How do you think? What is your mental processes and what controls that? So these are four elements of every worldview. What is your end? What is your God? What is your glory? What is your mindset? And here we have people who we should avoid, and it's people who avoid the cross. He says, for many of whom I have often tell you, and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So how do they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? It says their end is destruction. They're going to be damned. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their mind with minds set on earthly things. So now I I told you there are two groups that this may refer to. And I want to refer to one group as the self-righteous and the other group as the self-indulgent. These are the two possibilities that we have. Uh, the, the context, chapter 3, mentions a lot about the self-righteous. Those who are, who are trying to go before God with a righteousness of their own that comes from the law, that comes through obedience. Now, now these people, their end is destruction because they circumvent the need for the cross. What's the purpose of the cross? What's the purpose of Christ's sacrifice? If I can please God through my following of the law. Their God is their belly may be a reference to their following of the dietary laws, avoiding pork, and uncat, and avoiding pork, avoiding catfish. You know, avoiding all those things which are not kosher, under the dietary laws. So they're controlled by their belly. They glory in their shame, that is, they're valuing their works and their righteousness, which 
Isaiah tells us, is as filthy rags before the Lord. Their mind is set on earthly things. They're claiming to be spiritual, but really they're just focused on what they're doing here on earth rather than what God has done for us and what he has provided for us. So this is one group that people consider being in the category of of these people. That is the self-righteous. The other group is the self-indulgent. These are the people who end is destruction. They're damned as as well as the self-righteous are. Their God is their belly. That refers to their appetites. The things they hunger for, the things they covet, the things they lust, the things they enjoy, the things they indulge in, that's what's controlling them. The scripture mentions people whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and it describes them in this way. They say, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? For tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, and if death is imminent upon us, why not enjoy the appetites of the flesh? Why not indulge ourselves? Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their their wickedness has grown to the point that things that you really should be ashamed of, they brag about. They boast about. Saints, we're living in that age, aren't we? People boasting of things that should be shameful. And people taking pride in what they enjoy. Why? Their minds are set on earthly things. They're focused on the here and now because they have no hereafter. Uh, Saints, one of the things I want to emphasize to you, for some people... For the unbeliever, this world is the only heaven they will ever experience. This world is the only heaven they will ever experience, and they're living like it. Saints, for us, this world is the only hell we will ever experience if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. We've got another heaven awaiting us. They have a hell awaiting them. Now that should change the way in which you're living in the present, should it not? Those are the two groups. You have the self-righteous and you have the self-indulgent. Either one is getting you off track of living a Christian life. Both are, are focused upon ourselves and life on this earth. Both are walking as as enemies of Christ. One saying, I don't really need the cross because I'm going to provide my own salvation. And one saying, I don't need the cross because I don't want to be saved from my sin. I want to continue enjoying my sin. One of the things Paul has presented in, in the passage, in the things that come before this, is how to live as an ally of the cross. Paul is somebody who has deeply embraced the cross. He he says, you know, he has these odd things he says about suffering, how he doesn't mind it, how he he actually likes it, because it makes him more like Christ. It allows him to understand and experience and imitate Christ in in deeper ways. You think, how can that be? Well, it's because he's not living for this world. He's got his eyes somewhere else. Saints, I, I fear that we living in the West as a part of the unpersecuted church have not embraced well the cross. Um, There's a marvelous um, 
series on Dallas Theological's website. Uh, it's on for their World Evangelism Conference. That's uh, I would highly encourage you to go and, and look at. But it's about largely the persecuted church, and we really shouldn't say the persecuted church. We should say the unpersecuted church. Because what the Christians who are being persecuted are experiencing historically and globally, that's the norm. The odd thing is to be a Christian and to not experience persecution for your faith, to not suffer for your faith, to not have scars for your faith, to not be humiliated for your faith. That's the unusual thing. In fact, uh, this... Man, when he, he said he went and, and saw some of the persecutions and, and some of the miraculous things that were happening in the midst of persecution, said to the people, why aren't you writing books about this? You know, why aren't you sharing these stories? And uh, one of the older believers took him aside and uh, brought him to a window and he said, out there over the east, if the sun rose, would you write a book about it? And tell your son how crazy it was, how, how amazing it was, how unique it was. He said, well, no. He said, persecution here is as common as the sun rising in the east. It happens all the time. That's why we're not writing about it. This is the norm. This is the baseline. This is what's common to most Christian experience. We have to recognize we're, we're kind of the odd ones out those of us who have not experienced much persecution. We see in in Paul, he doesn't pursue persecution. He doesn't pursue suffering. But he has something that's more important than it, that allows him to persevere, that allows him to have hope, that allows him to rely upon the resurrection life rather than this life, to be living in light of the power of the resurrection. So we must imitate those who are imitating Christ. We must avoid those who avoid the cross. We need to be men and women who embrace the reality of the cross. In verse 20, after describing these people whose destiny is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory in their shame, who have their minds set on earthly things, it says, but. Aren't you glad for the buts of the Bible? That, that bring us to something new, something different. It says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I, I want you to know this is communicated in the present tense. We are. We is. This is not something that will happen when we go to heaven. We are already citizens of heaven. We, we are already a part of the state of heaven, the commonwealth of heaven. We should already be governed by heaven and its authority figure. Do you all know who that is? I hope you do. We should already already be governed by the kingdom of heaven and its ruler, even though we are here. That is going to make us odd people. Because our mindset aren't going to be set on earthly things. They're going to be set on heavenly things. We aren't going to be living for this world. We're going to be living for the next. We're not going to have ourselves as our ultimate goal, but rather our the good and the glory that is brought to God is our ultimate goal. So believers then embrace odd things like suffering. 
They embrace the idea of self-sacrifice, of humility, of humiliation in order that Christ might be magnified. Live as a citizenship of heaven. One of the things this, the present tense really brings out is you're already a citizen. You've got a passport with heaven marked on it. This isn't something that, that you get later on. We aren't an earthly citizen that is approaching a heavenly destination. We are a heavenly citizen that is passing through an earthly location. Live in light of the reality of your identity. You are a citizen of heaven. You once were in darkness, but you've been brought into light. You were once sons and daughters of wrath, but now you have made sons and daughters who are heirs of heaven and the promises in it. Once we were under wrath, now we're under mercy. Aren't you glad that Christ has brought us into His family? Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. A priesthood. A nation that exists for His glory and His honor. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in the present. The appearance of our Savior is in the future. Christ is our Savior. He is our Lord. By the way, as he's going through these things, our citizenship is in heaven. That's in contrast to those who have their minds set on earthly things. Where is our, our, our God? Our God is in heaven, our Savior, our Lord. He's in heaven now, but guess what? He's coming to establish his reign, his rule, his authority over earth when he returns. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Christ is returning to establish his rule, his reign, his authority. He is coming. And when we see him, we will be made like him. We will be transformed. Now, saints, this is good news. Because I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more worn down my body gets. I worked out on Saturday, and uh, this morning when I got up, I felt it. I have trouble. I have trouble bending over. When my dog comes up to me now, I've got to be careful. I don't bend down too fast because it'll hurt my back. My wife is more aware of my physical limitations than I am because there are times she'll sit, look to me and say, "If you do that, you're not going to be allowed to complain later." And what that means is you're going to be suffering physically. Usually, it's by over overeating or overexertion. And she says, if you do that, I'm not going to listen to you complain about it because your body has limitations that you're ignoring. There's certain limitations of our body, constraints of our body that are going to be changed. The corruptible is going to be raised incorruptible. We have a body that is subject to decay, to death, to rottenness, to wickedness, to evil. The new body isn't going to be like that. It says, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Saints, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a model and a promise for what He will do for us. That's why we have assurance. That is why we have hope. That's why when you hear about these 
almost ridiculously absurd promises of God. We're going to get a new body. We're going to, we're going to have a body that overcomes death. We're going to have a life that overcomes death. That's not in our experience. In our experience, death always overcomes life. How can we have hope in that? We have hope in that because it has happened in Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead, never to die again. That's where our assurance comes from. The same power that raised him from the dead is going to raise us from the dead. Christ is the Lord of life. And he defeated death not by going around it, but by going through it to overcome it. He's the Christian. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the one through whom we will experience the power of the resurrection. It's the same power that is subjecting all things to him. The Psalms talk about this a lot. All things being subject. All creation being subject. I'm looking forward to that day. When all things are under the effective rule and reign of Jesus Christ. He's king over all things. But his kingdom is going to come more fully when he returns to claim what is his own. As a result of all these things, says, Therefore, brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Uh, Indulge me for a minute. I'm, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. But one of the things we notice with Paul is Paul is a persuasive person. And one of the things I want you to know is that there are certain people who won't be persuaded by arguments. That's a reality. In fact, most people won't. Most of us think we, most of us are emotional creatures who have deluded ourselves to thinking we're rational creatures because we feel better when we think we're a rational creature. Most people aren't, aren't, aren't convinced by logical argumentation or, you know, deep theology or, or complex things. There's a lot of people you won't be able to argue into the kingdom. There's going to be a lot more people you can love into the kingdom. They won't believe you when they hear their argue, your arguments, they, but they will believe when they see your love. If it is a love like the Christ, love that Christ has for us. If it's a love that's not self-indulgent but self-sacrificial, that's what'll convince people. That's what persuades people. Throughout this this passage, he, he, Paul's shown his emotional heart. He he's begins by calling them brothers. He says he has tears at the fact that there are people living as enemies of the cross, both for their own sake and because they're going to be a detrimental examples to the church. Here, here he's saying, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Can you hear his heart in this? He loves these people. He cares for them. Since most people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There, there are people you are going to win to the kingdom by loving them by crying for them, by pleading them, that you won't win through cool, cold argumentation. You've got to love them. You've got to care for them. Paul has a deep care and a love for the saints. What does he want for them? What has he been arguing? As a result of all these things, heavenly citizens do all these things so that they stand firm in the Lord. 
He doesn't want them standing firm in their own strength. He wants them standing firm in the Lord. He doesn't want them to stray from the faith that they came to in Jesus Christ and switch to a reliance upon works. He wants them to remain in the Lord and stay steadfast in Him. There's no safer place. There's no greater place. There's no more glorious place. Saints, we're citizens of heaven. We have a king there. We have a destiny there. Are you pursuing that destiny? Are you living in light of your eternal destiny? Or are you focused upon the things of this world? I hope that you're standing firm in the Lord so that either when He comes to us or we go to Him, we can rejoice as a part of the throng that kneels before Him and every tongue cries out that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and the praise of God the Father. I hope you don't wait till then to declare His glory. I hope in the meantime you rely upon Him to accomplish His purposes for His glory as you live as a citizen of your eternal destination. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have given us a heavenly passport. That we're living as strangers and exiles in this world. Lord, I pray that our allegiance would be tied more closely to heaven than any earthly association. That we might seek the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ here on earth. That we would know our end. That we would know our God. That we would know our glory. That we would fix our mindset upon Jesus Christ and the things that will last for all eternity. We look forward to the day when our bodies will be renewed and prepared for eternal worship and praise of the one true God. Lord, you pray that we would worship Him and honor Him to strive to live as good citizens until He comes to establish His kingdom or we are sent to His. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.